Hey everyone, want to get better at creating good habits and kicking bad ones? It's not going to work, but here we go. Today's book is The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. I'm Kellen Erskine, and this is the first time I'm happy to have that last name. (laughs) I'm a comic, a father, and from the ages of 12 to 24, I had the habit of writing in my journal every day, but I was always afraid someone was going to read it, so I never wrote anything personal. I recently tried to reread it, and boy, is it not a page turner. What did you write? I mean, if you ever wanted to know when it rained during most of the 90s. (laughs) The Power of Habit gives tips and tricks for forming lasting habits, like Kellen's habit of constantly mocking me and my habit of quietly taking it. And this is The Book Pile. All right, here's a couple of fun reviews. Sclaris, Scleris says, Insightful information with witty delivery. We are big fans. Dave is pretty good too. Now, it sounds like I added that last part. <laughs> and I did. And Because no reviewer would call me good. <laughs> Autumn from Wonderland says, This is my favorite podcast ever. The combination of books and humor is absolutely fantastic. And I've recommended it to all my friends. Now, here's to hoping... That autumn is popular. <laughs> but in all seriousness, please do rate and review the book pile. It's very helpful for us. All right. And without further ado, here are five lessons that we took from The Power of Habit. All right. Lesson one, find the keystone habit. So they've done these studies on exercise because it's more fun to study it than to do it. They study exercise. They find something interesting. When people start exercising, they often start changing other habits even without even realizing it. So they may start eating better or being more productive, smoking less, using credit cards less. So exercise seems to be this keystone habit, which is a habit that improves other habits. So one takeaway for me is in your life, what's the keystone habit? It could be making the bed. It could be family dinner. I like to start the day by kissing my wife, Miss Columbia, before she goes to PhD school. Um, (laughs) In seriousness, though, my actual keystone habit is that I've started doing this like weekly virtual meeting with a personal trainer where she gives me homework. And if I haven't done it by the meeting, then I have to actually pay her more. So I found that there was like this host of things that I wanted to be doing consistently and I just wasn't doing it. But when I found the one thing, which was that meeting all of a sudden those other things started happening automatically. I would love that you know so little about exercise and she doesn't want to work. So she literally is just giving you like geography homework (laughs) and you come back every week. You're like, I don't know how this is helping. She's like, so who's the physical trainer, me or you? My exercise knowledge consists of, I know you have to like swing the cross and spritz the holy water (laughs) and you command the demon to leave. (laughs) All right. Lesson two, make it rewarding. So I used to want to work in public health, but I didn't find it very meaningful. So I did advertising. (laughs) There's this principle in public health. You want to make the right choice, the easy choice. So a, a great example of doing that is you make an activity rewarding in some way. When you brush your teeth, two things happen that are actually totally useless. So one, the toothpaste foams, two, your mouth tingles. And actually neither one of those things does anything to clean your mouth, but they do make you feel like your mouth is clean. And so all of a sudden they make toothbrushing more rewarding, so you're more likely to do it next time. Uh, Like, can you imagine if saving for retirement tingled? (laughs) So it's helpful to ask yourself, how can I make this habit rewarding? Like for me... 
basketball is something that makes sprinting rewarding. Like if you ever asked me like, Hey Dave, you want to wake up in the morning and go do sprints in the gym? I would never do that. But if you invite me to go play basketball in the morning, I'm much more likely to do that, even though it's basically the same thing. So basketball makes sprinting more rewarding. Uh, baseball makes death more rewarding, which is why they all chew tobacco. <laughs> all right. Lesson three, you can't stop habits. That sounds like a movie poster. It sounds like a terrible summer blockbuster about like an assassin nun. (laughs) (laughs) Old habits die hard. (laughs) You can't stop habits. The Sound of Music (laughs) 2. The Hills are alive again. Theaters 2022. So MIT did an experiment on rats. They put rats in a T-shaped maze, which, I mean, that sounds like the easiest maze. That sounds pretty simple. (laughs) (laughs) They examined the brain activity of the rats in real time as they put chocolate in the top left of the T and the rat is at the bottom. So at first when the rats were just sort of moseying around, there was no obvious external activity, but their brains were exploding with activity as they were searching new places and eventually finding their way to the chocolate. But they found that the more that the rats went through, the less active their brains became. It's the same reason why you can't remember which shoe you put on first today or why I used to be able to eat a burrito while driving a stick shift, <laughs> which which was way more dangerous than texting, but never illegal. So Duhigg tells this story. There's a 71-year-old guy in San Diego, Eugene Polly, and he had this extremely oh, rare Eugene. condition <laughs> where he... By the way, him and his wife, if you're going to write a movie about old people and you're coming up with names, they were Eugene and Beverly. <laughs> <laughs> He had this extremely rare condition where bacteria ate the basal ganglia in his brain, but there are no other Ah, damage. That's the worst. So that's what stores short-term memories. What they found is that even with his brain damage, he was soon able to relearn how to speak, but then he couldn't remember conversations that he had 10 minutes ago. He he wouldn't remember if his daughter came to visit. Uh, He would just be angry and he he wouldn't know why. Um, (laughs) Yes, the the prototypical response to a daughter's visit. I skipped a step there. It was it was a three-step thing. His daughter would visit, then she would leave. Ten minutes later, he would be mad that she didn't visit. Um, and then ten minutes after that, he couldn't remember why he was angry about something. So if you can imagine being, <laughs> being married to that. <laughs> I do like that notion that our habits are so strong that you can lose essentially all your short-term memory, and yet your habits persist. I think the only reason we experiment on rats is because they're ugly. Rats <laughs> have just as many neurons as medium-sized dogs, but we still only experiment on rats. Like, it doesn't matter how much we preach that it's what's on the inside that counts. We treat cute things better than ugly things. <laughs> so every week, two million rats die from experiments being electrocuted, mutilated. They're given tumors. They're intentionally interbred if they're predisposed to conditions like obesity, paralysis, anxiety, depression. Their tails are cut off their skulls drilled into without anesthesia and they're force fed oh my god every medication you've ever taken point being every modern medication plus countless other medical advancements have been developed from sacrificing rats and i'm just saying it if our only medical research option was to lobotomize puppies we'd still be prescribing <laughs> leeches for headaches <laughs> 
I get that they're gross, but that's that they're still animals, and that's they suffer when you're in yeah when you're in New York City. They're like ah, they're everywhere. And it's like yeah, because we brought them there, and they are the most adaptive animal on the planet, and we're just punishing them because they're resourceful. I get that they're ugly, <laughs> but that's the point. I'm saying we treat cute things better than ugly things. You know, there are rats <laughs> that are the size of chihuahuas. One thing I just remembered about myself as a kid was how disappointed I was at the end of Shrek when Fiona was ugly. <laughs> right. Yeah. I remembered being like, I know what they're trying to say. <laughs> the point of the whole rat thing is that I think the real reason why we're okay with experimenting on rats is that subconsciously, for all mankind, this is reparations for the bubonic plague. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right, lesson four. Find a cue. So he tells this story from America in the 1900s. At the time, you know, the country was getting richer, people were eating way more sugary food, and it got so bad that government officials called bad dental hygiene a national security risk. And the reason was that they were drafting men for World War I, and too many men had rotten teeth. Which, doesn't that seem like the funnest way to draft dodge? Like, you don't have to do something horrible, like shoot your own foot, you don't have to be in Canada, you just eat Kit Kats. <laughs> so, even though people's teeth are just like rotting out of their skulls, people still won't brush their teeth. But then along comes this toothpaste company called Pepsodent, and they launch this campaign. And 10 years after this campaign, America goes from 7% of people owning toothpaste to 65%. So we, we don't know that that's all you know driven by the campaign, but it definitely seems to have played this significant role. And one of the reasons the campaign worked was it gave people a cue. So part of the campaign says, run your tongue across your teeth, you'll feel a film, that's what makes your teeth look off color and invites decay. So all of a sudden, people have this cue. Every time they feel film on their teeth, they get this urge to brush their teeth to get rid of it. And you could argue that that cue is this huge part of getting Americans to brush their teeth. So for me, it raises this question, how do you give yourself cues for your own habits? So maybe that means that you work out right when you get home or right when you get insulin resistance, like whatever your <laughs> system is. Some people work out right when they wake up. One thing I did for myself, cues tend to work better for me when they come with a penalty. So for instance, for a while I was trying to sleep earlier and I gave myself like reminders on my phone that would go off at 1230 telling me to sleep. And if I ignored them, I had to pay a fine at stick.com, which is the site where you can like put money on the line so that you're forced to stick with your goals. Huh. So that worked while I was doing it and then I stopped doing it and now I never sleep. <laughs> I don't think we read it yet, but one of my favorite reviews we've gotten was from someone who said, I tried listening to your podcast to fall asleep, but I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Lesson five. To change a habit, replace the routine. So hopefully nobody shut this podcast off when I was talking about how you can't stop a habit. A habit is made of three parts, the cue, the routine, and the reward. For example, you start to get anxious about something and that cue triggers a craving for your cigarette. So now you go through the routine of pulling oh, it I out. I do have a craving for a cigarette. <laughs> I've never smoked in my life. How did you do that? <laughs> and the reward is that endorphin blast of a nicotine fix. To change a habit, you can't stop the cue that's been burned into your brain. And you can't change the reward that your brain is anticipating, but you can change the routine, or as scientists call it, the middle part. 
I, I will say on that first part, I think some people theorize that part of the reason that when soldiers came back from Vietnam, a lot of them got over their heroin addictions was they were just surrounded by totally different cues from the cues that were associated with their addiction in Vietnam. Something we're not going to go into length here, that you can't stop the queue, but maybe you can avoid the queue altogether. But the point is, when the queue sure. comes, how do you then avoid that habit? And the, the point is, you don't, but you do. You can change it. So right now, I feel like all of us have like a, a mask habit. The queue of pulling into a target is, where's my mask? So the routine is then grabbing the mask before leaving the car, and the reward is not getting yelled at by a white woman. Um <laughs> What's funny is I already had that habit back in the day when I went to banks. <laughs> <laughs> How funny is that now? You have robbers that are just trying to be taken seriously. <laughs> so the author says, in order to change a habit, introduce a competing routine. They theorize that this is one of the reasons why AA meetings are so effective, because a trigger for many alcoholics is sadness or bad memories, and they want to get rid of them. And so if you have that trigger, but you go to an AA meeting, instead of drinking and chemically forgetting temporarily of it, uh, you're sharing your sharing these experiences with a supportive group and then you still get the reward of feeling better. Yeah, I find that a great substitute for like substances is public speaking. <laughs> your trigger is that anytime I say something helpful, you make a joke about how it's not. <laughs> it gives me a big rush. I just, I'm just imagining someone who tonight for the first time was working up the courage to go to their first AA meeting and they're listening to this <laughs> podcast on the way and they're like, wait, public speaking. And they just pull right into a 7-Eleven. <laughs> so as a practical example, my wife and I got to the point where we we're having like ice cream and treats every night. Like while we were watching something on Netflix, it became a habit and it still is a fun habit. I love eating something while I'm watching something, but it just ended up being too much. So we've narrowed it down to where we have one sugar day a week. So it's the only only mm. day in the week where we eat processed sugar. But on the other days of the week, we had in the past tried to just stop eating after 7 p.m. altogether, but we kept breaking that. It's, a, it's very difficult. And now I'm finding out that we're just like rats. So why bother? <laughs> we're finding out that like... So we've replaced our eating treats while watching Netflix with honestly mostly with chips and salsa and i know that the healthier option is still not to eat anything we basically just traded sugar for massive amounts of sodium but it's still <laughs> obviously more beneficial than sugar dave doesn't have any strong feelings about sugar so i don't think he's gonna have anything to add to this but that's what we've <laughs> yeah. done and it's become extremely effective for us and it's more fun you know when when sugar night comes i did realize though other people don't know what that means and more than anything it probably sounds like a, a euphemism when i'm in target and i'm trying to figure out what ice cream to get i call it my wife and the people around me all they hear is is tonight sugar night <laughs> and then the sad response when she says no <laughs> i do like that notion that it's much easier to replace a habit than to totally eliminate a habit there's a quote by the poet john clare he says the best way to avoid a bad action is by doing a good one for there is no difficulty in the world like that of trying to do nothing 
I kind of think of this as the bullfighting principle, where when the bull is charging, it's really hard to like stop the bull, but it's way easier to get the bull to go in some kind of new direction that's like helpful for your goals. And in this case, it was a bowl of ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) So, random facts. I realize, Dave, that I, we probably do need to change this at some point because they're not really random because they they exactly coincide with whatever book we're talking about. <laughs> A study performed by a Duke University professor found that 40% of what we do every day is by unconscious choice. I didn't even know we were doing a podcast until a couple of minutes ago. <laughs> this is a podcast? Okay, Eugene. <laughs> Why don't you go make your seventh breakfast? (laughs) Uh, Another random fact. Bill Wilson wrote the 12-step program when he was high. So I'm glad it's working so well. (laughs) Technically, what happened is that he went to a a rehab program, and at the time, they treated people with basically microdosing them with hallucinogens. And so he hallucinated for a couple of weeks, and it was then that he had this sort of vision. I'm not sure the timeline after that, when he had the vision to when he wrote the 12-step program, but he did write it all in a night. I will say, Michael Pollan talks about in How to Change Your Mind, that LSD is actually being used in clinical trials to treat alcohol and it seems to have promising results. Interesting. Does that mean for people who aren't al- alcoholics, it's even better? <laughs> <This'll>, <laughs> yeah, you get how it works. This will really make sure you never drink. <laughs> <laughs> Why would I drink when I can fly with unicorns? So here's another random fact. Target predicted that a high school student was pregnant before she had even told her parents. Just based on her purchase history, right? Her purchase history, yeah. Target, like stores now do a crazy, when you're saving that 5% because of your red card, it's because they are gathering massive amounts of personal data. It's not just what you buy, it's when you buy it. It's the type of people who buy certain things. And so they, they have this whole algorithm where they have scores. They This person is 90% probability rate that he's a bachelor. This one- so, This person's not getting any sugar tonight so (laughs) so what happened was this guy stormed into target and he demanded to talk to the manager and he put this ad in his face in the manager's face this ad that had been mailed to his 18 year old daughter that just that mostly featured like maternity clothes diapers cribs and he was furious the manager apologized he felt so horrible about it that he actually went to the guy's house to apologize to him personally again later that week. And the dad was like, hold on. Turns out I wasn't aware of everything that was happening in my house. And his daughter <laughs> was like in her second trimester. But it was because of wow. this this algorithm that tracks like, and not just obvious, more seemingly obvious things like purchases of, of infant diapers or uh, vitamins c- containing DHA, but also fragrance-free lotions or purses that are big enough to put diapers in. Mm. Like it's scary how much how much that they know. So Dave, you're a vegetarian, but have you ever cheated and had a marshmallow? So <laughs> they have this I've always wanted to do a sketch where tofu is sentient and feels pain. And if anything, it's a higher consciousness. So anytime you kill one tofu, all the rest suffer. <laughs> Well, you definitely don't eat peeps. <laughs> <laughs> this 
study this kind of common knowledge at this point, the marshmallow experiment that was uh, conducted, though the conclusion of it is not as conclusive <laughs> as it's been presented to us. Uh, the marshmallow the test was that they would give a child a marshmallow, like a six-year-old a marshmallow, put it on a plate and say, if you don't eat this for 10 minutes, we'll give you a second one. And then they tracked how many of those kids ended up eating the marshmallow, how many didn't, and how did they progress in life. And they found that the ones who were able to practice uh, this delayed gratification of not eating the marshmallow, they ended up doing better in school, ended up uh, in better colleges, better jobs, making more money. But they did follow-up experiments after that that aren't talked about as much, where the scientists also found that you could teach all of the kids tricks to avoid eating the marshmallow. So uh, teach them tricks like uh, imagine that the marshmallow is like in a it's in its own little prison and you can't let it out for 10 minutes or imagine Gosh. yeah really <laughs> cruel things dark. <laughs> imagine it was caught possessing a small amount of marijuana. Yes. <laughs> and what they concluded with that is that even with the kids who inherently didn't want to wait, they could still be taught methods to then practice to wait. So the takeaway from that is that willpower is also a skill that can be learned and developed. Mm. All right, to recap, our favorite lessons from the power of habit. One, find the keystone habit. Two, make it rewarding. Three, you can't stop habits coming to theaters this summer. Four, find a cue. Five, to change a habit, replace the routine. And six, if you eat old marshmallows, you'll get into Yale. <laughs>